Father, we just pray this morning you would encourage our hearts. You would enlighten us into deeper truths of your word. You would call those who have not yet found faith in you. And for those of us who name the name of Christ, that you would encourage our hearts in the goodness of the work of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So recently, I have enjoyed the last several years uh, somewhat of a new little hobby of reading some books, uh, specifically history books, um, centering around almost always American history. And it seems like the reads I keep uh, finding are about uh, military history. And whether it's Revolutionary or Civil War or World War II, I've a lot of good reads lately. If you need a good recommendation, see me after church. i got a couple good books. Uh, but I was going through my Kindle app a while ago looking for another book to read. I was just scrolling through in history, and I came across a very different book. It was a book about June 6, 1944, D-Day, Normandy, from the perspective of the Germans. Someone had, uh, a reporter or a journalist had gone up and down the lines uh, of Normandy defenses years ago and actually had interviewed um, a lot of the soldiers, this journalist did, and then after Normandy went and tracked them down and began writing notes. He was going to compile, compile a, a book. He passed away. His son picked up his work and finished the book. But the interesting thing is it actually told the story of Normandy and D-Day from the perspective of the Germans who were at the, uh, the bunkers on the cliffs of Normandy, the morning they woke up and looked out across the sea and saw the flotilla of the Allied um, Navy coming across. And what did they see? And it very much, it was a prevailing theme over and over, the shock. For if you think about it, every morning they'd woke up, seen it, it was the same thing. All of a sudden, one morning they woke up and there were literally hundreds of ships waiting to invade. Can you imagine if you were one of those German soldiers on Normandy that morning as you see the flotilla out on the, on the ocean, the channel, coming across, a family member comes to you and says, would you like to buy some beachfront property in Normandy? <laughs> would that not seem like one of the craziest offers that you've ever heard? This morning, that is exactly what we encounter here in the book of Jeremiah. For we find, as we transition to looking at this particular text, we find Jeremiah in the exact same position. Jeremiah has been imprisoned for preaching the word, accurately and faithfully. This is not new to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is constantly in the book, you'll see, persecuted for preaching. It actually gets worse after chapter 32, but this is not the first time for declaring God's truths, he's come across uh, some kind of a negative reaction. Apparently, King Zedekiah has decided that he doesn't like what what, uh, Jeremiah has been saying, especially because it involves him, and has put him in jail, this time at least in somewhat of a more posh uh, scenario, because he's at the palace. So Jeremiah is in a palace jail, he's being attended to, he's in captivity, but... As the text tells us, Jerusalem is now under siege. The mightiest, most fearsome army in the world is camped all around Jerusalem. They've built their walls. They've dug their channels. They've dug in. It's a siege. You can see the enemy right over top of the walls. In essence, that same principle, although it's a siege, not an attack, but Normandy, but that same thing, you can see the enemy, they're right there. 
And Jeremiah gets a visitor, a knock on the door, if you would. I don't know exactly what the the gate looks like, but he gets a visitor, and it's his cousin. And his cousin comes to him and says, Hey, would you like to buy some land in Anatoth? Now, to understand that, Anatoth is Jeremiah's hometown. That's where he grew up. However, Anatoth happens to be over there. Anatoth right now is totally under Babylonian control. Why would he ever want to buy that piece of land? Jeremiah, though, interestingly enough, does it. Now, you would think at a time like this that perhaps he would go for some kind of a fire sale. Sure, but uh, I'll buy it to you from you 10 cents in the dollar. Uh, what kind of a family discount might I get? You know, something like that, wouldn't you think? Because obviously, if he buys the land, he can't use it. It's not his. If he buys it, it's literally throwing his money away in a human term only. But he still does it. And look at verses... Uh, I lost my track here. Look at verses... Uh, number nine, Verse 9. When Jeremiah agrees, now interesting enough, he had cash on him. He's in jail. 17 shekels. I don't know what 17 shekels of silver is. I don't know if that was a lot or a little, but Jeremiah had cash. As my guess is, though, because Jeremiah was not exactly popular, that he probably wasn't very wealthy either, because I doubt he was getting a whole lot of money for his work. So this very well could have represented either his whole life savings or what he had left or a good portion of it. Uh, but he offers 17 shekels. But look at verse uh, verse 9. And look at the meticulous way Jeremiah goes about buying this field. He weighs out the money. Verse 9. And he weighed out the money to him. 17 shekels of silver. Then he actually has a deed executed. I signed the deed. I sealed it. I got witnesses and weighed the money on the scales. He wasn't going to cheat his cousin out of even an ounce. He was going to make sure he paid exactly the fair market price for that piece of land. Then I took the deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. Translation, he made two copies. One working copy, and then one, you see here in the next verse, he actually has it taken, put into an earthen vessel, sealed. For a good long keeping. He went all in, didn't he? On buying this field. And he did it right. He did everything to the letter. He did it as legally binding as I think you could possibly have done. Especially given the circumstances where you think there would be somewhat of a chaos. Going on with a, with a siege going on. They're right at the edge of the gate. Probably famine is set in the land already in the city of Jerusalem. And Jeremiah buys the field and he pays full market value for it. And he does it by the letter of the law. So, question, 2,700 years later, what do we learn from this? I suggest we can learn from this morning two very practical things this morning from what Jeremiah had done, and one what I will call a timeless example. First, the very practical example of follow God's word, not life circumstances. You know, Psalm 119, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Implication, it's dark outside. The whole passage is built on the fact you can't see. You're in the darkness. It's some, you're in some kind of a deep passageway. You need God's word to light your way. Think of this. When that, uh, when Hanamel comes to Jer- uh, Jeremiah, his cousin, and offers to buy him, in essence offers to sell him, in essence, it was really nothing more than a real estate transaction. 
Now, I'm not minimizing Scripture. And as you see going on, there's more going on than just that. But at its minimum, at least, it was nothing, if nothing more than just a business transaction. Would you like to buy some land? A real estate transaction. Now, I wonder how we would interpret that scenario. Let's see. i got to give up my life savings for a piece of land that I cannot use, that I cannot even get to, in today's terms, maybe a down market, that, you know, the stock market sliding down. That would be my definition of a down market. I'm probably already getting made fun of by the guards in the uh, castle because they heard all this. You're going to buy the land? You know, <laughs> it seems obvious. The answer is no. I don't want to buy the land. The circumstances are about as obvious as you can get to dictate, do not buy this piece of land. And we kind of do that ourselves. I think when we want to go decide, what's God's direction in my life? Why is what's happening to me happening? How should I react to the circumstances in front of me, to my life? What do I do? And I think it's very common for us as Christians to play the part of looking at the circumstances around us to be the primary indicator for how we should interpret God's direction. I mean, we've all done it in some way or another. I'm at a restaurant, I'm eating my dinner, and all of a sudden somebody I haven't seen for 15 years comes up to me, we start talking, he offers me a job. I wasn't looking, it was a random act, that must be of God. And we have this tendency to be looking for the circumstances out there and try to subscribe, try to ascribe divine intervention to that as if God wants to use the unordinary events to talk to us and he's incapable of using regular ordinary events to talk to us. It's much more exciting to try to look for those unusual things and describe God's direction than it is to be looking for him in the everyday daily walk of life. But that's where God almost always is for us. Yes, and I'm not saying circumstances are not to be paid attention to. I am not saying that. Oftentimes, God will use circumstances to help us. But sometimes they're there to test us. And how do we know the difference? So, what does Jeremiah do? Jeremiah ignores circumstances and sticks with the plan. God already told him what he should do in his revealed will. The scriptures had already spoken to this very uh, event. For in the uh, back in Leviticus, hundreds of years earlier, God had laid out a principle called the kinsman redeemer. That's why when his cousin came to him, he said in verse number 7, the word of the Lord came to me, behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you by my field. Then verse 8, then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said, here we go, by my field, that is an Anatoth, in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. There was this principle in the Old Testament laid out in the book of Leviticus called kinsman redeemer. It was a very elaborate principle. It actually covered people, it covered animals, it covered land. It was a principle set up where God tried to drive home the point, whatever is God's, he will not lose. And so he set up this elaborate system Whereas if someone were, for instance, to sell themselves into slavery, there was a way to buy them back out. If they had to sell the land that was their inheritance that God had given to them, there was a way to get it back. And it depended on times. Even eventually, there was something called the year of the Jubilee where they got it back anyway. 
But one way or another, God had set up a principle for which you could get things back. Remember the book of Ruth. The whole book of Ruth is built on this principle of the kinsman redeemer. Because Boaz is the, and actually he was second in line, if you remember that. Whereas you could actually get someone and buy back someone or something. That was a kinsman redeemer. If he was able. Jeremiah apparently had enough cash, 17 shekels of silver. He had the first right of refusal or the ability to buy it so he, the cousin couldn't or wouldn't sell it away to buy that land. It was his responsibility. Now, you have to wonder what the motivation of the cousin was. Because unless he wholly believed in what Jeremiah was forecasting, which was the destruction of Jerusalem, that he knew that God would be bringing him back, if that was what the cousin truly believed, that Jeremiah's prophecy was actually twofold. It wasn't just that judgment is coming on Jerusalem and God is going to wipe you out, which is what was coming. But Jeremiah would also had prophesied that you're going to be in Babylon for 70 years, and then after 70 years, God's going to bring you back. Maybe his cousin totally bought into that. I doubt it. Or maybe his cousin was trying to raise some cash real quick for some less than a good reason. Maybe he was trying to have cash to bribe the guards on the way to uh, Babylon. Maybe he was trying to have extra money to buy food in the family. We don't know. But I'm curious about the motivation of the cousin to begin with. But Jeremiah didn't matter to Jeremiah. It was his responsibility because Scripture had already made it very clear what his responsibility was, and so he did it. So all the things and all the circumstances to him was less important to him than what Scripture, God's revealed will, had already been to him. And so he followed it. He just did what his responsibility was. I think we have the same process to go by now. God's revealed word to us hasn't changed either. When we face decisions and we don't know what's going on or what we should do next, the first question is, well, what does God's word say before we interpret those circumstances? We always must stick to the plan, follow what God has laid out for us. Oftentimes, when we're faced with a difficult decision, a confusing decision, God's word actually is fairly clear. We know, as we said this morning, we should worship God and enjoy Him forever. Our first priority should always be to worship, even in times where we're confused. Solomon makes it very clear. What is there? There's safety and accounts uh, and a multitude of what? Counselors. When you want to make a decision, don't do it alone. Find someone who you trust, who's a godly person, ask for advice. There are things in Scripture that are very clear to us that we know to follow, even on those that are not clear. Clearly, if it's sin, there's no way God's in that. doesn't matter what your circumstances are. If something that Scripture clearly is against, you already know the answer. There's no reason to even fret over that. The answer is no, don't do it. But in those areas that we're not so sure, Scripture does give us a plan. Seek advice, counsel. And the next point that Jeremiah makes very clear to us, point number two in practicality, is this. Pray. That's God's plan for us. When we have difficult things, we must always follow God's word and we must pray. Jeremiah gives us a very good example of how to pray. Notice he must be feeling undoubtedly foolish. You know when, because it says he had witnesses on that deed. You know he had to feel pretty foolish. You know the guards are probably giggling or poking or, you know, even making a few jokes. Hey, Jeremiah, I've got some land to sell. Like you can just hear what might be going on, right? <clears throat> I'll sell you my place. I got a really good, I got a 40 acre farm full of milk and honey. How about that, Jeremiah? I mean, you can just, you know, he's got to be feeling foolish. 
He did it anyway. He's lost his life savings, or at least a good portion of it has to have been. He was in prison. He's probably feeling tricked or abused by his own family. I imagine he's bottoming out. And what does he do after? Notice this. He prays after he obeyed. Because he already knew what he was supposed to do. He already knew God's word. He prays afterwards. But notice the three key elements of his prayer. Verse 19, or excuse me, verse 17. He starts out, Ah, Lord God, it is you who has made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. He begins his prayer by worshiping. And that is a great example for us all. When we start out our prayers, and we did this morning in the Lord's Prayer, to start out by simply worshiping is an absolute perfect way to start because it puts us in perspective. We are nothing. God is everything. Then he transitions in verse number 20. He begins to remember God's faithfulness. Verses 20 through 24, he he recalls the deeds of God, including in often times in the Old Testament. When we read prayers of the Old Testament leaders, kings, and prophets, they over and over recall God's faithfulness to them and to their, uh, their nation. Specifically, they always seem to reference bringing them out of Egypt. And so Jeremiah does here. Because out of Egypt is linked directly to the land they're in. Because coming out of Egypt was to take them into the promised land. And so he begins by worshiping, immediately followed by he remembers God's faithfulness. After all that, that's when he comes out with it. Verse 25. It's like, God, you are... Nothing is too difficult for you. You have brought your people out of the land of Egypt. You have given us this land. And you can feel the the sense of his confusion. Yet you, O Lord God, verse 25, have said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. He said, you know, God, I know how powerful you are. I know what you have done. But are you kidding me? I just bought a land that was under enemy control. You've you've made me give up cash for land that is in the hands of the enemy. You know why I think I have it right on what he's thinking? Because notice God's reply. The word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? I think God's reply back is, yes, Jeremiah, that's exactly what I had you do. I got this. There is nothing too hard for me. Trust me. You bought the field properly. So Jeremiah teaches us to follow Scripture. Jeremiah, practical example. Jeremiah practically tells us when we're confused, we don't know what to do, pray. And when you pray, worship and remember. But there's a timeless example here for us. I'm involved in a, um, in a homeschool speech and debate club, as you, many of you in here know. We do this a lot. It's kind of like who, what we do a lot for the last 10, 12 years. And I serve in, in, uh, in that organization. And so we have a criteria for our homeschool debaters that we prepare a resolution for them every year. There's one resolution. We have several criteria we look for to make a good resolution. And one of the key criteria is this. Is the resolution timely and timeless. Is it both? Because it's different. Is it something that's practical today? Is it timely? And is it timeless? Does it carry on when they learn about taxes? Will it help them over the next 10, 15, 20 years? Is it timely and timeless? 
And what we see this morning, I think we can now begin to go a little higher up. There is something very timely here. The timeliness is, what about the Israelites right then and there when Jeremiah bought this field, this crazy purchase? What was, what was for them to take away right away? And I would tell you, look at verse 15. Verse 15, Jeremiah has just bought the land. He's just weighed out the shekels of silver. He's just created the deeds. He's just had it all sealed up. But then he goes back into prophet mode. For thus says the Lord of hosts. He's given a reason what's going on. The God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Jeremiah put his money where his mouth is, to use a very common expression. He was prophesying, and he does over and over, judgment is coming, you're not going to escape it. Judgment is coming, you're not going to escape it. We're headed back to Babylon. You're going to be taken captive. You're getting taken away from the land that God had given you hundreds of years ago. You're going back. But in 70 years, you're coming back again. Well, bring you back. God is faithful. He will not take you out of this land permanently. We will indeed sell and raise crops and have commerce right back in this very field. That's why Jeremiah bought it. That was the timely part of what his example was. He was saying God is faithful in all his promises. Even in the face of judgment, God will keep his promises to us. He is a covenant keeper. Even though we're covenant breakers, he is a covenant keeper. He will bring us back. Seventy years later, we're coming back. That's what the purpose of that earthen vessel was. Let's make a real estate transaction because it's going to matter because we're coming back. He put his money where his mouth is. But, you know that commercial on those, uh, but wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. There is a timeless aspect to this. Jeremiah is not only showing the faithfulness of God at that very moment. He is demonstrating for us, 2,700 years later, the faithfulness of the kinsman redeemer. Every time we read in the Old Testament, you've heard me say this and you know yourself, Jesus is everywhere in the Old Testament. We need to find him everywhere. He's in the kings. He's in the priests. He's in the prophets. He's everywhere in the Old Testament. And Jeremiah was two offices. Jeremiah was a priest and he was a prophet, which is actually a little more unusual. Jeremiah had both offices. But in here, I don't think that's exactly what Jeremiah is modeling primarily. For I think in this very specific passage, because what we didn't mention this morning is in chapter 31, which is right before this, and chapter 32, right after this passage, we have sandwiched the story. Chapter 31 is one of the most favorite, famous passages in all the Old Testament of the coming New Covenant. That's where the promise of the New Covenant comes. Jeremiah 31 is hugely um, referenced as the essential definition of the new covenant coming. New, and then 32, in the back half, we actually see it again confirmed. And sandwiched between the new covenant comes the story of Jeremiah buying this field, modeling for us Christ. Because what we see here in Jeremiah is the kinsman redeemer laid out beautifully, beautifully for us on what Jesus will do. If you think about what Jeremiah went through, Jeremiah was persecuted for preaching. He's even later on thrown into the pits. He's put into the stocks. He's thrown into jail. I mean, he, he there did not Jesus come to earth and suffer the exact same things? Did not when Jeremiah buys the field? Doesn't that seem even he thought that seemed totally unlogical, illogical? Does not 
Jesus and the plan of salvation where we say a man comes who's born of a virgin, lives a sinful life, and must die for us, does not the world think that sounds crazy? Does not the world think that... Has not God confounded the wise with the foolishness of his salvation plan? Does that not sound to the lost silly? But that is exactly what the kinsman redeemer does. And lastly, both Jeremiah and Jesus refuse to lose hold of their inheritance. I had a recent conversation with a friend a couple weeks ago. He neither believed in, he's a Christian, very much a believer, but neither believed in eternal security nor election. It was an interesting discussion. And in that discussion, we went back and forth, and I was thinking about that, preparing this uh, sermon. Oftentimes, our doctrines in the New Testament are laid foundationally in the old. That's why you can't you can't separate scripture. We need Genesis all the way to Revelation. So often, what we see in the Old Testament helps us understand and and grasp deeper what goes on in the New Testament. And to deny eternal security and to deny election is to throw this principle of the kinsman redeemer on its ear, to totally flip it and to not understand. For every time in the Old Testament, that the principle of redemption comes into play, it's specific. Jeremiah knew exactly what field he was going to buy and how much it cost. When in the Old Testament, you could buy animals back. You could redeem sacrifices. You could redeem people. It was every time that kinsman redeemer already knew who and what he was going to redeem and how much the cost was. He didn't just throw a pot of money into some big place and say, anybody who needs out, here's your get-out-of-jail-free card if you need it. It was very specific, I'm going to come redeem that from that person for this cost. The principle of redemption is a business transaction, and a business transaction always knows what you're getting. That is the principle of a redeemer. Secondly... Jeremiah, when he's doing this, is laying out the idea, as the whole concept of kinsman redeemer is, is that whatever is God's, he will not lose. When God gave out, now, some of you might actually go, wait a minute, I'm pretty certain that the um, Levites didn't have an inheritance. Because scripture, when they laid out, said that there's 11 different tribes got land and the, the, uh, the Levites didn't get an inheritance. Because God is their inheritance. That's true. But that's not accurate understanding of what actually happens. Because God's principle, when he laid out the land, was he had this huge section of the promised land that was for the Benjamites. This huge section over here that was for Judah. That was land. But he wanted his Levites, his ministers, to be among the people. There was no land given to them. They were among the people. Inside that, though, they were to be given land out of those people's inheritance. So, the Levites did have an inheritance. It was just localized. That's why his cousin came to him and said, Anatoth, that's where his family had settled all those years as a Levite, this is your inheritance. So he actually did have inheritance. Jeremiah was not going to let that which was his get away. Eternal security. When Jesus comes, he is not going, when he came and purchased us, he is not going to let us go get away. One of the most famous passages on eternal security here, the work of Christ, on John 10, I give them eternal life, which is our inheritance, and they will never perish, 
no one will snatch them out of my hand. The work of redemption is tied directly to our inheritance, which is tied directly to the doctrine of election. When Jesus came, he came and he specifically redeemed us. He knew exactly who he was coming to redeem when he came. He didn't come for to make it salvation just possible. He came to know exactly who he was redeeming. Listen to Ephesians 1 in this context of redemption and inheritance. Ephesians 1, in him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, do you hear the language of Jeremiah coming? Were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Do you see that? Just as Jeremiah took the proof that God is going to come back and transactions will occur, seal it up, when Jesus came and his work of redemption applies the Holy Spirit to us to seal us up so that under no circumstances can we be fall, uh, can fall away and lose our salvation. My friends, if you are in Christ this morning, that is your encouragement. That it's not up to you. It's up to your kinsman redeemer. And he has redeemed us. Jeremiah laid out a great example for us. Not only practically, telling us when life looks a little weird, follow the word first and then pray. But more importantly, Jeremiah encourages us this morning that you who are in Christ have been redeemed. You are an inheritance that he will not lose. Would you join me in praying this morning? Father, we come to you worshiping you for what you have done for us. For you keep us in your very hand and will not let us go. And for that, we worship you and praise you this morning. In Christ's name, amen.